0: Looking at the Book of Galatians, and by the way, didn't Pastor R.J. crush it last week? Man, what a great job! Galatians chapter two, talking about Galatians two connects back with Acts chapter fifteen. If you want to kind of read a comparative of how they go back and forth together, and it it talks about the fact that uh, that sometimes there are disagreements that are even of a serious nature. Now, when we're talking about areas of preference, we all, all of us, need to be somewhat flexible. This may surprise some of you, and, I, and, and maybe, maybe not. We don't do everything around here the way that I would prefer. You know why? Because it's not all about me. Now, let me help you out, because here's step two of that statement. It's not all about you either. Matter of fact, it's impossible for us to do everything exactly the way everybody wants it. Let me ask right now, see if we can get a little feel in the room right here to explain what I'm talking about. How many of you think the room is just a little bit too hot right now, and you wish it were a little cooler? All the hot-blooded people, raise your hand real high. Yeah, there's a few of y'all. How many of you are thinking right now, what is wrong with that group of people? I'm about to freeze. Let me see your hand right now. Yeah, a few of you. My point is, in in areas of preference, if you're hot, go buy lighter clothing, okay? If you're cold, bring a sweater. I I know it's July. You're probably thinking, oh, I can't. It'll be okay. You can leave it here on your seat, and provided you sit there again next week, it'll be there waiting for you. In areas of preference, we have to be, we have to do what Paul tells us to do, which is prefer others above ourselves. So, mature Christians don't get mad because it's not the way they want it to be. They make us stand up too long. They make us, they don't do this enough. They don't do that enough. I wish it was more of this, less of that. Because here's what happens. We get caught up in all those peripherals. We fail To see Jesus. When it comes to a matter of doctrine, we cannot have any tolerance for doctrine that is inaccurate because it is essential to life. Now, Paul speaks here to the Galatians in the first couple of chapters. He's talked to them uh, in in a place of giving validation to the gospel of grace. He has defended it and defended himself because the Galatian church was involved in a theological predicament. They started well, but then they faltered. And that'll come up later in the book. You started good, But somewhere along the way, you messed up. Now, it's not what we often think of when people are backsliding, because normally we think about people backsliding in a church like ours, and we think they started drinking or they started smoking or they started doing something that was wrong. But actually, what Paul's talking about here, the backsliding that occurred in Galatia, was they were sliding back into Jewish customs that appeared to be very devout and very... Sincere in their desire to please God. It quite honestly is what today we would refer to as legalism. People have trouble with this concept because when you preach against legalism, then people automatically assume so you're saying there are no laws, there's no right and wrong, it doesn't matter how you behave. Well, wait till we get to chapter five, and Paul will make it very clear that behavior is incredibly important. But behavior is not the foundation of your salvation. You could never be good enough to earn it. Tomorrow, a little before this time, I'll be standing here talking about my good friend Ed Dugan, who I think was a good man. I think he was a Christian gentleman. Have enormous respect for him. But I want to tell you something he's not good enough to get into heaven. Don't be shocked. Neither are you, neither am I. Somehow, if we're not careful, we fall into the trap of the Galatians and thinking that if I'm good enough, God's going to give me an extra sticker. No one is righteous. No, not one. Old Testament, New Testament, it's there and and, and you can't get around it. So how do we get there? Only by the grace of God. You go, well, that sounds kind of cheap. You don't understand grace, it's the most costly thing ever. It cost Jesus his life on the cross. Now, here's what happens. Did I leave it in the notes this week or take it out? I took it out, I think. It was in there the last couple of weeks. Here's what you have to know. You are saved by grace, period. No other way. You are transformed by the grace of God. Now, there's a part of it I get that we do give our effort, but our effort would come up so far weak short of the grace of God, and we could never think that our effort is what leads us to sanctification. It's the grace of God. God's grace transforms us. And if you don't understand the transformation that comes because you've encountered the grace of God, you need to have a fresh and full experience of God's grace that is life-altering. Think about the words of one of the most famous hymns of the church world forever and ever and ever by the old slave trader called Amazing Grace. What does he say? What's the narrative he gives to explain this transformation that Jesus makes in your life? He says, I once was lost. Anybody ever been truly lost? That is a miserable feeling. Now, if you've ever been lost, raise your hand no man in the church will raise his hand right now cuz we know where we're going we're just it's over there somewhere we just don't know how to get there to be totally lost with no sense of Landmarks or anchor points to know where to go or how to get to, to be lost in the desert, to be lost at sea. That's the picture the psalm gives to us. I once was lost, but now I'm. Wow. Can you imagine, picture in your mind for just a moment, being truly lost at sea where you can't even tell which way is north, south, East or west, unless the sun's up and you're trying to figure out what time of day it is, unless it just rose or going down. You don't know where you are. You can't see land anywhere, not even a speck of dirt on the horizon. You don't see anything but water, and you're out there in a boat by yourself. Can you imagine the joy that you would feel when all of a sudden, in the distance before you see it, you hear something? it's a boat, it's a motor, it's a sound of help. Can you imagine being there, being lost, and all of a sudden scanning the horizon and as you look back and forth, finally over to your left, you see it over there. There's a ship in the distance and it's headed toward you. You know, just like I do, before they can even see me, I would be up on my feet, waving my hands. I would be shouting hysterically, I'm here, I'm here. Now, you know what I'm really saying? Not I'm here, I'm saying you're there. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That's the transformation that only grace can bring. You can't fix yourself enough. You can't improve yourself enough. Because of this, the Galatians had foolishly embraced legalism. First two chapters are validation. The next two chapters that we'll start in today are explanation or doctrine of grace. And the last two give application. Now, Paul, as he gets into this chapter, he's, he's amazed. He's baffled. He's confused at how quickly they had accepted a substitute for Grace. And he gives three arguments against righteousness through works and affirms righteousness by grace. Here they are. The first argument he puts before them, he says, How could you be so foolish considering all that you have experienced? The Galatians had experienced salvation by grace. Now he says to them, You foolish Galatians. Let me give you just a quick point of reference and encouragement as you read scripture, to make sure you study it enough to know what you're talking about. Because I've heard people say, yeah, Paul was wrong there when he called him foolish because Jesus said, don't ever call your brother a fool or you'll be in danger of hellfire. Two totally different words. Totally. Well, one's fool and one's fool. They sound the same to me. That's because you don't speak Greek. The word that fool that Jesus issues is a word that's given with, with hatred, with prejudice, with, uh, with demeaning of all human characteristics. I mean, it is a word of absolute, um, it, it, it's such a disparaging word. It's hard to even put in the English language how awful that word is in the Greek language. It's calling someone the worst name you can think of. And to translate in our language, I would have to use words that I don't use. It is the most hateful, awful word you can imagine. The word that Paul uses here is a different word. There's one word that's used in the Greek class called moros, where the word that we get, quite honestly, that's probably offensive to a lot of people now, would be the word moron means someone who is lacking in ability. That's what the word originally meant. But this word here is not even that word. This word is another word that speaks of a person who has been fooled. Therefore, they are foolish. They have been fooled because they have stopped thinking and have become gullible in their approach to life. So they bounce around with whoever they hear talking. And he says, how are you so foolish? How are you so easily fooled? And that's the next verse there. You foolish Galatians who has bewitched you, the the NIV says. And the word there, bewitched, has to do with deception or trickery. You, You could look at it this way, casting a spell on them. Not literally, but it has that effect so that you don't even understand anymore. How did you get tricked? Into believing such nonsense is really what Paul is saying here. And he goes on to say, before your very eyes, Christ was portrayed as crucified. He says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Now, how many ever of you ever heard a parent say to you, I just want to know one thing. And how many of you know after that phrase, you're about to get verbally worn out? Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? Again, easily fooled, lacking wisdom or discernment. After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing? The word suffered there could also mean experienced. It could have the negative connotation of suffering if it really was for nothing. Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you've heard? Paul addresses them as foolish, gullible, and thoughtless. Now, here's what that tells me. He he also identifies them as followers of Christ, and it tells me this, that salvation is not the conclusion of my spiritual journey but the beginning. And once we are saved, there is much need for growth and maturity and development of understanding. Paul goes on to remind them of what they had seen. And he begins a diatribe. The word diatribe means a forceful, sarcastic, harsh, and bitter statements that are made. He says to them, I just want to know one thing. And then it's like, uh uh-oh, here we go. And he unloads with five rhetorical questions. He, He basically asks them, did you get saved because you did the law or because you believed what you heard? Was it by works or was it by faith? Everybody say, faith. And then he says, now that you started with the Spirit, which is grace, which is goodness, which is gospel. Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? That's works. How do we grow? By faith. Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it was really for nothing? In other words, how are you continuing on? Is it by the power of your effort or the power of the spirit? Does God give you a spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you've heard? You you, you may think, well, pastor, this was, you know, this is back first century church. We don't have those kind of problems today. It's amazing how easily into a church like ours, a theology can creep in that says, if you're good enough, maybe God will answer your prayer. Pray harder. Do more. I, I believe in prayer. I believe in our effort But the problem is we take our eye off of what the source of our help is. And we somehow put it back on our own shoulders. And it creates some goofy theology. Goofy is the Greek word for foolish. We begin to, instead of encouraging and helping people in time of trouble, we begin to analyze. Well, the reason you got that problem is because you did blah, 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 blah. Well, that's your problem right there. That's what's wrong. And, And what happens in that moment is all of a sudden, rather than being filled with the spirit of humility, which is a sign of a follower of Christ, I become filled with arrogance, thinking I can tell everybody what's wrong with them. It kind of evolves from there. And if you can just get brother so-and-so or pastor so-and-so over here to pray for you, oh, that'll fix everything. Are you kidding me? It's not that God doesn't use certain people. I'm not against that. But our theology goes too far sometimes in thinking that it's founded in human effort rather than recognizing it's by the hand of God. And to him all glory is given. He asks these questions, these rhetorical questions. He calls them, Phyllis, he reminds them of what they had seen, the crucified Savior. And he begins this diatribe against substituting works for grace. Can I tell you that any you move away from grace to anything else, you are moving from the superior to the inferior. Can you imagine being at a hotel somewhere, and and it's it's your time to check in, and they go, sir, I'm sorry, but our hotel is really full, and the room that you had reserved, the cheapest one we have here, because you're a cheapskate, the one that you wanted, that room is no longer available, but our presidential suite is available, and if you would like it, we would want to make that available to you at no additional cost. Can you imagine getting mad and going, no, I paid for that little room by the ice machine (laughs) next to the elevator. That's the one I want. I want to hear every time somebody needs ice or any time anybody comes and goes, I want to be woken up many times through the night. And you're wanting to put me in a better room? What is wrong with you? That's what we do when we substitute anything for grace. Grace is not cheap. Grace is not ineffective. Grace changes everything. It is transformational. It makes you a new creation. If any man tries harder, he is a new creation. If any man gives it his all, no, if any man is in Christ. He becomes a new creation. All things pass away. Everything becomes new because grace changes everything. Don't substitute that which is superior for something that is inferior. The Galatians were saved, but they had not matured in the process. They needed the fullness of God. They needed the understanding of God's word. See, when we when we build our life on works, I'm just telling you, I've seen it, I've experienced it, not too many times personally, thank God, but it happens to all of us if we're not careful. Occasionally, when we start looking at how good we are, and we think, "I'm pretty, I'm pretty something." You know, back in the day, I used to preach three times a week and teach Sunday school and drive the church van and whatever else needed to be done. I kind of did it. And I could kind of start thinking, you know, I'm a pretty big deal. Then you read about some of the circuit-riding preachers who would take their horse and go from old town to town back, you know, 150 plus years ago and I was preaching you know three times a week 150 times a year maybe and they're preaching a thousand times a year they're preaching under an oak tree over in this spot over here and by the barn over here and I'm thinking well I'm you know my works really probably aren't that good I've said it before have you ever noticed when we're trying to make ourselves good we pick out the worst person that we know of to compare ourselves with well, my neighbor down the street, you know, he gets drunk, beats his wife, kicks his dog. I'm better than that. Well, whoop dee do See, when we base our life in our works, it always creates pride, but grace, listen to this, grace always produces humility and gratitude. Now, I'm not trying to set up a little... Seat of judgment here, I'm just giving you an observation I've made. I can tell really pretty quick if people are walking by works or they're walking by grace simply by this one test right here. Are they walking in humility? Are they expressing gratitude to God? And the the questions of the five rhetorical questions, the answer in every one is this. Every blessing comes from God's grace, not our goodness. Now, just real quick, let me hit this real fast. It's in your notes, and I want to make sure I say this. A proper understanding of grace leads to obedience. It's automatic. It's done because you want to, not because you have to. That may come up again in a minute, but let me go ahead and say it now because it fits right here. But obedience does not lead to grace. I can follow all the rules, but if I'm following the rules, then what I typically try to do is compare myself to other people, and that's when I get into trouble. But if I am, by grace, growing in obedience and understanding, that's the path God laid out for us. So you know the problem going on here? It's the Judaizers, the people of Jewish faith. So Paul is attacking them straight on. He hits, the, hits them first of all with, well, I just want to know one thing. And then he tears into them with these five questions. And then he says, and by the way, Consider Abraham. You, you couldn't pick a better person to argue, as your example, in an argument with the Judaizer. The Judaizer, so, so I know this is like out of fashion and out of date, so young people don't mock me over this, but, but it's, it's kind of what it is. Paul, in confronting the Judaizers, he goes back to the, the, the OJ, not the OG, but the original Jew, Abraham. In this passage, starting here in verse six, eight times he calls Abraham by name. Have you ever been in a conversation? Not only does he give them the diatribe of the questions, but he goes, well, consider Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was counted for righteousness. Abraham is the father of all of us who have faith in God. Abraham, 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 Abraham. He just wears them out on Abraham Best guy that he could pick, Moses was the lawgiver, but Abraham was before Moses. This is the this is the man. This is where the covenants start. This is the place. And Paul says, "Here's what all of this about." Now, notice this. I think it's uh, in, in verse seven in the NIV. It comes across clear. Other versions, maybe not quite so much. And it's there in the original language. Paul says. Uh, Consider Abraham. He believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. Understand. You know why he said that? Because they had lost all their understanding. That's the foolish part. You've been so foolish, you don't even think anymore. You're following people who are giving you a false gospel. So he says, understand this. Those who believe are children of Abraham. Wow. We don't get that in our culture today he could not have hit them with a stronger shot than that right there. I mean, this is like for Americans referring back to George Washington. Well, George Washington said, George Washington did. I mean, that, that gets back to the core of who we are. And he says, understand this, those who believe, those who have faith, those who walk in grace are children of Abraham you got to understand the Jews, took, they took great pride in the fact if they were Jewish, we are children of Abraham. And Paul's going, no, you're not. Because you're not acting like him. You're not believing God. You're doing all this other stuff, but you're missing the main point. Paul then explains that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. I think that's an incredible verse. Verse 8, the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Paul is saying even way back from the time of original writing, there was an understanding that scripture was unfolding, that justification is available for all who believe regardless of, of, their, of what tribe they belong to, regardless of, of whether they're part of the Jewish nation or not. Paul then explains that he would justify, which puts us in the position we now serve from desire, not obligation. Archie gave a great story about that last week, a horrific time in our nation. I won't go through the whole story again, but where a lady was sold into slavery, and the man who bought her took her down to the courthouse, and he signed the papers to give her her freedom. And the lady said... The whole time she was telling how much she hated him and how how despicable he was. And he came out and said, I have given you your freedom. And she said, Before I hated you, but now I want to serve you because you have freed me. See, we don't serve God out of this drudgery or out of this, this compulsion or obligation. We do it because it's our desire. I was very, very blessed to grow up in a home where this was taught. Even when I didn't understand it, it was taught. And my dad would say, son, you don't have to pay your tithe. It's a big debate going on now in some Christian circles or whatever. And God cares a whole lot more about your heart than he does the activities. But when your heart's right, the activities will be right. He said, you don't have to pay your tithe. You get to pay your tithe. That's a privilege. That's a joy. When you put that offering in the bucket, which we don't do anymore and it's killing me. When you put that offering in the the basket, the bucket, the plate, whatever it is, you ought to just have a little shout in your heart. (laughs) Ha ha, praise God. Got to do something for the Lord today. After all he's done for me. See, it changes everything. We serve because we want to, not because we have to. We get the blessings of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. The favor of God that was promised Abraham is promised to all who believe in him through faith in his grace. We're blessed along with Abraham. The third thing I want you to see so, first of all, he says, let me, let me tell you how you're wrong. Look at your life. Second, look at Abraham. He says, third, look at Jesus. Jesus has now redeemed us by becoming a curse for us all who rely on observing the law are under a curse now now, now this is a I think a a key to point out here it's not all who observe the law are under a curse I may trip some of you up but listen to me hear me out here I would encourage you to obey the word of God I don't want you to miss that point at all But if you're relying upon your obedience to put you in favor with God, you're missing the point. Obedience to God is the result of faith in God and receiving the grace of God. Paul says here, that we should not rely or depend upon observing law. And if if we do, we're under a curse. So in other words, if we're saying, God, I've done enough good to get into heaven, I want you to look at my record and see if it makes it. If we're doing the one to 100 scale, which is one of my kind of favorite ways to look at life, and you're the best person in the whole world ever, and God starts giving you credit for how good you are, and you got to get to 100 for him to accept you. When, when he starts counting your good deeds up, it starts off with a decimal point in front of it. I mean, your best effort, greatest ever in your life isn't even one point. It's a point two. And he keeps adding it all up. And if you've been really, really, really good, you've got to get to 100. This is an illustration. This isn't a fact, okay? Just trying to help you understand it. You've had a great life, never done anything wrong. You've given to the poor. You've helped the needy. You've done everything right. When it's all added up on the zero to 100 scale, you might be a three. Most of us get kind of disappointed if somebody says we're a three out of 10. I'm saying you're a three out of 100. The best one in the room, it goes down from there. But Jesus... Is 100. So when I put my faith in him, it is imputed to me for my righteousness. And God looks at me and he says, You're 100. And I'm just laughing, going, Seriously? I thought I was a two. You're giving me 100? It's because you put your faith in Christ. And because you did that, Now you do walk in obedience to the Word of God, but you're not relying upon your obedience for your salvation. Are you tracking with me? This is so critical that you get this because there's a lot of people in the Christian faith, they don't understand. And they're relying upon, well, I went to church, you know, 42 out of 52 last year. That's better than almost everybody, well, I gave this much money last year. Those are all good things. And if you were here 42 times last year, shoot for 45 next year. Those are great things. I'm not demeaning that, but they are not the source of your salvation. I said it a few weeks ago, that the source of your salvation is the grace of God and your, your faith in that. The fruit of your salvation is obedience. Christ redeemed us from the law. I'll skip down to, to verse 13. Curses everyone who's hung on a tree. This is kind of an interesting little side note that I thought was interesting. The ro- Crucifixion was not a Jewish practice. It was a Roman practice. A Jewish tradition did have a way to punish those who had done wrong that deserved capital punishment. It was called stoning I don't know if I'd rather be, well, I think I do know. I'd rather, I think I'd rather be stoned than hung or than crucified. Because stoning probably, if they do it right, doesn't last very long. Crucifixion could be for days. So, you know, hit me with your best shot. Throw the rock, you know, let's, let's get this thing over with. So why does it say hung on a tree back in Jewish tradition? Because often what would happen, somewhat similar to deterrent mindset of our even our culture today is that after someone was stoned back in the old testament days they would often take the body and hang it up at a tree for everyone to see this person was killed because of their disobedience but jesus did more than that he died on the cross for our sins to be our redemption now here's what the 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 passage tells us this The law makes us aware of our faults and thereby condemns us. The the law could never justify it, it only condemns us. I remember back when I was in seventh grade, we had a teacher named Mr. Stinnett. He was also the head football coach, and it was seventh grade math, and he was strict. And he did not tolerate any talking in his class. As a matter of fact, he was so strict that he said, when the bell rings for class to start, we're the first class today and sometimes he was off doing stuff with the football team before school and he said, if the, when the bell rings for class to start, whether I'm here or not, class has begun and if you talk, you will be in big trouble. Well, one day, and, and, and by the way, it's probably a real shock to a lot of you, I got in trouble in elementary school and grade school for talking too much. I know it's really hard to believe that. On this particular day, I knew how strict he was, I knew how harsh he was, and I'd made up my mind to sit here and be quiet because because people started talking, it started getting louder, and the bell had rung and we're about a minute minute and a half into class, maybe 2 minutes. And now there's this kind of, you know, 7th graders one of my high school teachers said they can sound like a lawnmower going over a chain link fence. You know, they just make this, this noise that just builds. And he walks in the room. He's all, I mean, he's Mr. Atlas. And, and back then they paddled you, gave you swats. They beat you. That's what it was called, really. And he walked in the room. He put his book down and he says, he goes, every man out of the hallway, every young lady, start writing sentences because I heard you coming down the hallway long before I ever got here. Now, listen, I tell myself, don't say a word, don't say a word, don't say a word. Be quiet. I had done so good. And this is the truth. A girl started to sit down in her seat and she started to put her hand over the wall, and they had just painted there. You could smell it, you could see it was still wet. And it was after the bell rang, and I said, That's wet paint, don't touch it. That was all I said. I promise you, God is my witness. That day, other days I had said more. That day, that was all I had said. And he gets us out in the hallway. All the guys are lined up. He's got his paddle. And he says, did you talk? And kids are going, no, I did not talk. They, they, they talked. <laughs> they talked. No, I did not talk. He says, go back inside and sit down. Did you talk? No, I did not talk. He gets to me. He says, did you talk? And I said, well, there was, he said, yes or no. Did you talk? I went, Yes. He said, stay right there. Did you talk? No, I did not talk. I mean, we got through the whole, you know, whatever it was, 15 guys or whatever. There was me and one other guy standing there that were actually honest. They had all been talking. And he says, he he says, because you two told the truth today, you're getting a pass. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. Because he was big and hit hard. We walked back in the room, and he gave us a diatribe. (laughs) I just got one thing to tell you. Do you think I'm stupid? You know, I mean, the same thing kind of Paul did a little bit. And and he said, you men lied to me. We were seventh graders, but to him we were men. He was trying to call us up and who we should be. (laughs) You men lied to me. Only two of you told the truth. And I'm not going to punish the two of them because the rest of you are lying cowards. I'm like... I'm glad I talked. <laughs> See, here's what the law says. No exception. Did you mess up? Well, no, no, no. Yes or no? Have you ever made a mistake in life? Have you ever had a bad thought? Were you ever, did you ever lose your temper inappropriately? Have you ever done anything wrong? Yes! You're judged. But... The gospel of grace provides redemption. Even though your sins be as scarlet, marked and stained and dirty, and, 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 and you can't fix it. By the way, the last two years at the baseball game, I've worn a white shirt, and I've, and I've got crazy stuff spilled on them both times. I don't, haven't seen the one from this year. I'm hoping it, did it come out? Thank you, Lord. Though your sins are many, and though your sins create stains that seem to be unremovable, the blood of Jesus Christ washes away every stain every sin and now you are declared righteous because of your faith in Jesus Christ and you're set on the right path to walk in holiness. (laughs) I remember back in high school, a kid gave me a hard time one time. He said, oh yeah, you're a Christian. You're a preacher's kid. What do you do for fun on the weekend? You get a milkshake with a little bit of extra vanilla. What do you do? He was one of the biggest drug pushers uh, at at our school. I said to him, I said, you know, Kenny, I really love life, and I have a lot of fun. And if somehow you think being a Christian means that you can't enjoy life, you have been sadly mistaken. I'll get to it later. I won't go into it now. But you want to know what you give up to be a follower of Christ? That's in Galatians 5, the works of the flesh. You know what you receive in return? The fruit of the Spirit. It's a beautiful trade. Through Jesus Christ, we are redeemed. We're put in the right position. We're given the promise of God, and we have new life. Here's four things I know about the redemption very quick. Number one, it is a finished work. He redeemed, past tense already happened, fully paid for. Nothing else need be added. Nothing else can be added. Jesus paid it all. It's personal. He has redeemed you. It was for you that he died. It was for you that he hung on the cross. He has redeemed you. It has a purpose. He redeemed us from the curse of the tree, the curse of the law. Now we have got freedom. And as substitutionary, he became like us. And he suffered in our place so that through faith, by grace, we can now be children of God. Would you bow your heads with me? maybe you're watching online and you've just never really got to that place. You've had confusion about what it means. You are saved by grace through faith. It's not of works so that none of us can brag about it. It's by the grace of God. If you're watching now, you need to make that commitment. I encourage you to go online to the comment section. Just put on there, I want to receive God's grace into my life. We'll pray with you. We'll get back in touch with you. We'll give you resources. If you're here in the building, we have a resource packet out there for you. If you want a new start with God, a new start in life. Paul said that if we will believe in our heart, that God raised Jesus from the dead and confessed with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, we shall be saved. John said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Listen, the most fickle thing that any of us experience in life are our emotions it's not based on how you feel it's based on the fact of god's word and when you build your life on that truth feelings will follow but they will never lead you to the right place matter of fact most of the time feelings will lead you to the wrong place put god's word at the front of your life how many of you here today would say pastor i need god's grace in my life would you simply raise your hand all across the room anybody. I need the grace of God in my life today. I need God's grace for salvation. I need God's grace for something I'm getting into. Yes, thank you. Thank you. God, we thank you that your grace is abundant. That your grace is free to all who ask. We thank you for it in Jesus' name.